Welcome to uh, our first evening service on experiential theology. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we ask that you meet us in a very real way through your word. Father, would you help us to worship you tonight with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind? Would you transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our ears, and that you would grant me, your preacher tonight, clarity of thought and of speech, that you might be glorified in this place. Amen. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. Have you ever really thought about that phrase deeply? In the beginning, God. It means that before anything existed that does exist, God existed. God was before the beginning. Before the millions of stars that you see every night, before the sun and moon, before there was air, trees, or even a sky, God existed. That's God's eternality, God's aseity or self-existence, and that's really a mind-blowing thought just from those four words, in the beginning, God. That means that God is unique. He's different from anything that exists, and He is the source of everything that does exist. When you think about that, it ought to cause us to want to know this God that is unlike anything or anyone we've ever encountered. And so understanding God's eternality should give you a deep sense that you can trust a God like this. A God that came before all things and from which all things came. What an incredible God. That is experiential theology. King David, a man after God's own heart, cried out in Psalm 139 saying, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you dwell there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even your hand will lead me there. Your right hand will lay hold of me. What a God. But what does all that mean that David just communicated? Well, it means that God is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. And what it further means for you in your life is that no matter what is happening in your life, how hard it's become or how dark it may seem, you can't escape God's love for you as a believer nor His presence. And His hand is always ready to lay hold of you. This is a God that you can cry out to like David did at any time, anywhere, and know that He's there. That's experiential theology. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Christians, just like you and me, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, says, In Him, that's Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possessions to the praise of His glory. Now, what's going on in this passage? Well, you, as a believer, are sealed in Christ. But with what or with whom are you sealed? And then what does it mean to be sealed? We need to answer these questions. Beyond that, there's the question of, well, what does this passage have for me? What's significance? What's the significance of this passage for my life? What's the significance of this passage for your day-to-day life? Well, it means that every believer is sealed as God's possession by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of ownership or as a promise of your redemption. It means that God is so serious about your salvation and your security that the Holy Spirit is given to you so that you know you will belong to God. In other words, your salvation is 100% secure. That's experiential theology. I want you to, just for a moment, imagine being a slave in ancient Rome. Many slaves were forced to become gladiators, and I want to sort of have you put yourself in that scene. And to be a gladiator meant that you were effectively a slave of death. But every now and then, after three years of serving, three years of rather surviving, three years of winning in the arena, some would be set free. Imagine that day. If you were that slave, if you were a gladiator, imagine the day that you got to stand before the Roman official or the emperor after three years of surviving, three years of not seeing your family, three years of being beaten and treated as a slave. You're finally going to be free. But here's the problem. You're a slave. And because you're a slave, you have the marks of a slave And how would anyone believe you if you told them you'd been set free and you know what they did to runaway slaves? But it wasn't just your word that you had. You were given a wooden sword called a rudis. And that rudis was a sign and a seal, a pledge for your freedom. It was proof of your freedom so that everyone could see that you are now a free man. If you're a Christian, then you too were once a slave of death headed for destruction until one day Christ came to set you free. And much like the gladiator who gained his freedom was given a promise of that freedom, you were given a promise of your freedom, the Holy Spirit who sealed you as a promise of your redemption to come. And everyone who has the seal is guaranteed eternal freedom, eternal life with God, and no one can take it from you. What an incredible salvation we have. That's experiential theology. You know, there was a time where man lived in a perfect place. There was no sin. There was no suffering, there was no sorrow, there was no 
pain. Man lived in the garden. He walked with God in the cool of the evenings. Just imagine walking with God in the cool of the evenings. He had sweet fellowship with God. But then man disobeyed God and he listened to the serpent. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall eat. You shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die, God said. But then the serpent comes to Eve, and the serpent says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve replied, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And at that moment, instead of believing God, Eve believed the serpent, and so she ate the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, and she gave to Adam who was with her, and they both ate in defiance of God's directions. Now, man has a problem. They let sin in. They severed the relationship, not just with God for themselves, but for all of mankind. And subsequently were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, now to live a cursed life along with all of mankind. We see the result of this fall and original sin in Ephesians when the apostle answers the questions concerning the current state of man because of original sin. What is man like now because of sin? Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 describes the state of every unbeliever. Dead in your trespasses and sins, walking in the according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He goes on to say that men live according to the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath. Man has a problem. Not only does he no longer have fellowship with God, but now because of that sin, he is spiritually dead. He's left with no hope, no fellowship, and only darkness as he follows the ways of the world, which is just another way of saying following after ways of Satan and of sin. And so man has a problem. But Jesus, in Mark 2.17, says it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Christ came to fix what Adam had broken. Christ came to give life where sin had brought death. But there's something else. There's a penalty that has to be paid for our sin. And so Christ came to pay that penalty for all who would trust in Him. And listen to what it is that Christ paid. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
but He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Isaiah 53.3 This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ came, and while you were a sinner, He was crushed for you. He endured shame for you. He was brutalized by the soldiers that kept Him for you. He was mocked and whipped for you. He carried that cross for you. And when they reached Golgotha, His feet were nailed to that cross for you. His hands were nailed on that cross for you. And He hung on that cross and He bore the full wrath of God towards sin. For all who would repent of their sin, professing Him as Lord and believing in their heart that He was raised from the dead, He did it for you. All to save you. All to bring glory to the Father. To pay the penalty that you deserved in your place. And on the third day, He rose again, and now He prays for you at the Father's right hand. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. And so when we hear Christ say, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We respond with a loud voice that says, here I am, Lord. I'm following. How could I not follow a Savior that suffered as you did for me? Here I am, Lord. That's experiential theology. Theology is a word that is frightening to some, odious to others, foreign to countless, and believed by many in the church to simply mean rigorous study which produces a dull and lifeless Christianity. There was nothing dull and lifeless of anything that we've looked at so far. Theology is meant to be experiential. In other words, it's meant to do more than just convey information. It's meant to raise your affections towards Christ. It renews your mind with the knowledge of Scripture so that you have the mind of Christ. It answers the questions of how does this knowledge, this doctrine apply to my day-to-day life on earth here and now. Every doctrine in the Bible, and doctrine, by the way, the word just means a teaching, is meant to help you keep your eyes on Christ. It's meant to help aid you in your sanctification and your Christian walk here on earth. Theology isn't for the ivory tower. It's not for those who have seminary degrees. Theology is for every single Christian who loves God and desires to follow after Christ. 
If you love Christ, then theology is for you. Now, I hope you've had a little taste of experiential theology just from the opening examples. But I want to do some defining for you, and I want to give a little introduction for what we're going to spend the following Sunday evenings the rest of this year doing, Lord willing. But before we get to the definition of experiential theology, we really need to know what is theology, right? It's very simple. It's made up of two words, theos and logia. It literally means a word about God. So theology is very simply the study of God. Systematic theology is the next term that would be helpful for us to understand, at least in generalities. Systematic theology is the study of theology that essentially answers the question, what does the Bible say about any given topic? Take a topic. What does the Bible teach about who God, what God's love is? And systematic theology answers the question of what does all of the Bible in its totality teach about that subject. So it takes everything Scripture teaches in context and presents it so that we have an understanding of the whole picture and teaching on a particular subject. Now, as far as I know, I've coined the phrase experiential theology. If I'm not, I'm sure someone will let me know. So I want to give you my definition. Experiential theology is theology that is presented as living, as a living, experienced word in the mind, heart, and life of a believer. We'll say that again. Experiential theology is theology that is presented as a living, experienced word in the mind, heart, and life of a believer. It's sort of a marriage between systematic theology that's traditionally a bit more academic, and experiential preaching. And what you have in the end is theology that becomes alive and real in the life of the believer. It's not just information for information's sake. That was never meant to be the case. It's opening the Word of God with the expectation that as you study, it molds you, it shapes you, and it changes you. That you encounter God through His Word and that it has an impact on your life. If you can study theology and it's not impacting your life, you're doing it wrongly. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, and I quote, If our so-called faith does not lead to any kind of experience, then I doubt whether it is Christian at all. Our faith must be living, real, and experimental. He's using that term in the same way I'm using experiential. In other words, what you read in Scripture and what we learn in Scripture ought to affect our lives. Now, the word experiential is not a new term. It was often used by the Puritans. It was used by John Calvin way before that. In fact, John Calvin would often use the words experiential and experimental in the same way, uh, synonymously. So it's not a new term, but the Puritans used it often, and they understood that the Christian life must be more than information. 
That information has to have an effect on us. It has to transform us. It must be experienced. And so, for instance, if you can leave on a Sunday morning, week after week, and walk away and say, well, that was a really great sermon, but it has no impact on your life, whatever it is that you're doing isn't Christian. And so the goal, this is the goal of experiential theology, that it transforms your life. That as you learn, it goes from your head to your heart, so to speak. Learning theology in such a way that each Sunday evening you encounter the living God in and through His Word, and that over time it changes you. That your love for Christ grows. That your love for fellow man grows. That your love for truth grows. And that little by little, you see the fruit of that bearing out in your own life. That's experiential theology. So by now, I hope you kind of have a sense of why even we need to study theology. And I hope that you're excited to encounter the living God through His Word as we look at various doctrines over the coming weeks. But I do want to give you a few pointed reasons. And remember, tonight is just sort of an introduction to experiential theology. But I want to give you just a few pointed reasons as to why we should study theology. And we've likely all heard phrases similar to, well, I don't need theology, Nathaniel, I just need Jesus. Or, theology is for people who don't really practice their faith. Now, you already know that that isn't true just from what you've heard tonight. But I want to equip you with some good questions, uh, some good answers to the question of why should I study theology? Maybe not just answers for others, but maybe answers for yourself as well. The first reason that... I'm going to give you four, four or five of these. The first reason that we should study theology is simply to get to know God. If we want to know the God we call Heavenly Father, if we want to know the God to whom we pray, if we want to know, to know the God to whom we sing, worship, songs in adoration to every morning, we've got to learn about His character and His nature. And the Bible is the only place to learn about who God is as He's revealed Himself to us. For instance, lots of people will tell you that God is a compassionate God. He's a loving God and that He's a just God. But how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, we know that. For instance, because we can read in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where Moses meets the Lord to replace the Ten Commandments. I mean, that in and of itself is an example of God's graciousness. But listen to what's said. It says, Then the Lord passed in front of him, being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so we know God is compassionate, loving, and just because that is what the Scripture teaches us about God. 
And this should have an impact on your life. Coming to understand this should impact your life. Because now you know that when you pray to God, that you can know with certainty that the God you are praying to is a compassionate and loving and just God. The Bible is full of God's attributes and teaches us a lot about who He is, His character, His nature, which should want to make us study theology. The second reason to study theology is so that we may grow to delight in God and what He's created. We've said this already, but theology is not at all about head knowledge. It's never less than that. But it always has to be more than that. It's about coming to know God and to know His creation in such a way that you find yourself in awe of a mighty God. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And when we consider that God has created, when we consider what God's created and consider who God is, it ought to make us want to cry out like King David did in 2 Samuel. David says, for this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. The third reason to study theology is to reveal to us God's plan for mankind. To reveal to us God's plan for mankind. The only way, let me say that again, the only way to truly understand man and his nature is to hear what God has to say about him. Genesis tells us about the relationship we were meant to have with God. The Proto-Evangelium in Genesis reveals God's solutions to the problem that man now has, sin. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand human depravity and the wickedness of sin. And then we see God's love and plan for redemption in the person and work of Christ. And in Revelation, we see the return of Christ and His response to mankind and man's final dwelling place with God. So from Genesis to Revelation, we get a full understanding of who mankind is in relationship to God as far as God's been pleased to reveal it. We see whom we were created to be and what God has done to deal with the issue of sin. We learn what the natural state of the heart is due to total depravity. And we learn what it is meant by getting a new heart. And so we study theology so that we have God's view on the heart and the purpose of man before and after the fall and then for all eternity. The fourth reason to study theology is so that we love God with all that we are. I think one of the most heartbreaking realities in the church today is to hear a Christian say something like, I love God, and then to discover that they really know nothing about Him. And so someone says, I, I love God. 
I love Jesus. And as a believer, especially if you've never met the person before you go and visit someone and someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you get a little bit excited and you think, okay, well, you know, tell me about your walk with Jesus. Tell me about this Christ that you serve. What do you love about him? What attributes strike you the most? And they just sort of look at you like a deer in headlights. And maybe they say something like, well, I love that God is loving in the New Testament instead of being wrathful the way He was in the Old Testament. You know, and then at that moment, if you truly know God, your heart just sinks because you realize that they love a God that they don't even know. You realize that God, the first things ever killed were animals that God killed, God took their life to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. What a compassionate God. That's Old Testament. That was Old Testament. But not only that, God saved Noah and his family. If you read that story, everyone was doing evil. Their thoughts were evil continuously always. And instead of that being the end of mankind, God saved mankind and was gracious through Noah and his family. What a compassionate God. That's the Old Testament. God brought His people out of Egypt. And while they were on their way to the promised land, ten times did they rebel against God and He was long-suffering with them. Ten times! before finally there was justice. God forgave them time and time again. God blessed His people time and time again. He was long-suffering, He was loving, and He was gracious, and that's just in the Old Testament. Not a wrathful God. God is a wrathful God, but that's not all He is. He's also a loving and compassionate God. From the beginning to the end because His character doesn't change. And so we study theology so that we can come to truly know God so that we might love Him deeply as a Father with whom we are familiar. Fifth reason, I think this is the last one I'll give tonight. is we study theology so that we might come to love and serve Christ faithfully. So few people truly know much about Jesus' character and nature, much like God. We profess to love Christ, but do we really know Him? Many know some details about Jesus. They know He was compassionate. They know that He healed the sick. They know that He died for our salvation, but many professing believers couldn't tell you what John means in 1 John 2, 2, when he says of Christ, and He, that's Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. They couldn't tell you what that means. They couldn't tell you about Christ's deity. 
In fact, many Christians reject His deity altogether. They couldn't tell you about His oneness with the Father or talk to you about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God, the second person of the Trinity. These aren't just facts about Jesus. This is who He is as a person. So many believers know so little about the one they call Savior because they don't study the Bible. Jesus was truly man and He was also truly God. We can never separate those two things. If you serve a Jesus who was man and not God, then you serve a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. If you serve a Jesus who was only God and not man, then you serve a Jesus that's different than the Jesus of the Bible. The hypostatic union matters. This is why we study theology. If we are to love Christ truly, then we've got to know Him. We've got to understand who He was and who He is, what He believes about sin and what He says about salvation, what He expects from those who follow Him. And how He views those who call Him Lord and Savior. And the only place to learn these things is in the pages of Scripture. If you were to describe here tonight the person that you love the most in this world, and why don't we just, just do that. Imagine the person that you love the most in this world. It's likely that you could tell me all about them. You could tell me what they like, what they dislike, what they enjoy, what they love to eat, what activities they enjoy, right? But you, then you could also tell me what causes them pain. You could tell me what causes them to grieve. You could tell me what they hate. You could tell me what offends them. You could tell me something of their fears and their failings. And you could tell me about their strengths and their hopes and their dreams. Why could you tell me those things? Well, you could tell me those things because you've invested the time to really get to know them because you love them. And yet, so few spend the time to get to know the Christ they proclaim to love. There are things that prove we truly belong to Christ. Do we know what those things are? You know, on the last day, Jesus says that many will come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they name all these miracles and all these good works and all these deeds that they did for Christ. And they call Him Lord. And they believe that He's Lord. And what does Christ say? He says, depart from Me, for I never knew you. Do we understand how that could be possible? How is it that someone could say, I love Jesus, and they could do all these things for Christ, and yet on the last day, Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. How could that be? What did Jesus expect from them that they didn't have? We study theology so that we might come to know Jesus truly. What He expects of us. What He does for us, 
who He is, His character, and His nature, and more importantly, so that we can love Him sincerely. We study theology so that we have such a view of Christ that when we consider how magnificent, how splendid, and how majestic He is, that we can't help but to worship because we actually understand what we're saying. We understand what it means that Christ is magnificent. We understand what it means when we talk about His glory. We understand what it means when we talk about His love for us on the cross. We understand what it means that He's full of grace. We study theology so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of the day, all of our learning of theology must cause us to look to Christ. If it doesn't, then it's because hearts are cold and we haven't really learned anything at all. A true student of theology will become the greatest lover of Christ. John Calvin said, All theology, when separated from Christ, is not only vain... But and confused, but is also mad, deceitful, and spurious. So the faithful Christian must study theology. But as we study, we have to be sure that we allow it to conform us to the image of Christ. That we not only have theology as head knowledge, but that we have experiential theology, a theology that changes us. We've spoken a little bit about the fact that the word doctrine just means teaching. So, in closing up here, I want to just run through very quickly what doctrines are we going to be learning, and it will be done. What doctrines are we going to look at as we go through experiential theology? Well, we're going to learn bibliology. There's a lot of big words I'm going to throw out here. We'll get to them. But this is what the Bible teaches about itself, its inspiration, its inerrancy, its authority the canonicity of Scripture. We're going to learn about theology proper. This is the doctrine of the existence and being of God, including the triunity of God. You'll develop a good Christology. This is an understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is so vital that we truly understand who Christ is, both His divine nature and His human nature, not two natures, but one. Because salvation is dependent upon what Jesus you follow. If you follow the Jesus of the Mormons, for instance, or the Jesus that the Buddhists may speak of, or the Jesus that the prosperity gospel teaches, then you are following a different Jesus. And so we'll learn what the Bible teaches us about who Christ is in the work of the cross. We're going to dive into pneumatology. It's just a really big word for the study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
We'll look at what the Bible teaches about mankind, how man was created, his fall, his depravity, his need for a savior, man's creatureliness. This is anthropology. We're going to study homardiology. That's just a fun word. It's not a fun subject. That's the doctrine of sin. How does God view sin? Where did sin come from? What's the nature of sin? How do we explain a loving God in a sin-filled world? These are the questions that we'll answer. We'll look at soteriology. This is the doctrine of salvation. I mean, imagine being a Christian and not wanting to understand as fully as possible the great salvation in which you have. How do I know I'm truly saved? What about false conversions? How you know, can I lose my salvation? And if not, why? We'll cover all of that. From there, we're going to take a look at angelology. I mean, there's no shortage of talk in some circles about angels. But how much do you really know about angels biblically? We'll look and we'll see what God says about holy angels, about Satan, and about fallen angels. The next stop in our journey through experiential systematic theology is going to be to discover the world of ecclesiology, which is desperately needed today. That is simply the doctrine of the church, both universal and local. What is the church? What does God expect the church to look like? Are we to meet in corporate gatherings, what some might refer to as organized religion, or are we meant to just be in homes, undefined and sort of haphazardly put together? You know, I guess that's the unorganized religion. Does God care what songs we sing or what we wear to church? Does God care how we worship Him? Do we only do the things that are prescribed in Scripture to worship? Or can we do whatever is, can we do whatever isn't expressly forbidden? These are the questions that we'll answer when we look at ecclesiology. And then lastly, we're going to look at eschatology. This is the doctrine of the end times. We'll learn about heaven and its glories and about hell and its horrors. And we'll learn about the two groups of people that will either dwell in one or the other. The goal of experiential theology is very simply this, that the theology you learn becomes the theology you live. That's it. Because as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, true theology always moves the heart. True theology always moves the heart. And so by the time we end, Lord willing, how many ever Sundays that ends up being, You'll have a good overview of the entire Bible in terms of these major doctrines we've mentioned. At least you'll have a good, you'll have a good overview. And the hope is that you'll be overwhelmed with a love for Christ and God that you've never had before because your understanding will be much deeper than it ever has been before. And as we go along, my hope is that you let each teaching, each doctrine go just really into the depths of your soul and that at the end you come out looking more like Christ. And that ought to be your goal as well, that you come out thinking more like Christ, loving more like Christ, and able to communicate those same truths to others in a way that you never could before so that they 
come to look more like Christ and think more like Christ and love more like Christ. That's experiential theology. Let's pray.